Every journey begins with a question. Our journey begins with this one. How can we lead to make the world better? Here, we explore that question through journeys of great success and accomplishment, confronting challenges and overcoming obstacles with leaders from around the globe, whose experience covers a vastly diverse range of background, sector, role, and expertise. One common thread unites them all. They are all leaders striving to make the world better. They are all better world leaders. This week we're joined by Kevin Tan, a Melbourne-based entrepreneur who's proving that profit follows purpose. So this is very much a conversation around the transformation that's come to one young entrepreneur by really quieting down and listening to that call and following and finding purpose. Kevin Tan is is a fabulous guy. I haven't had the opportunity to meet him as yet because since I was introduced to him, essentially he's been in lockdown in Melbourne, Australia. But this conversation was fabulous and I found what that we sort of knit quite quickly and really have found that co-joined theme of following purpose that so many of the guests find in their dialogues on Better World Leaders. We talk about his backstory, how he came to that purpose, having gone into a global consulting firm, Accenture, straight out of uni, and then essentially the journey on country, you know, in the field with World Vision that really took him into all corners of the world to understand things like gratitude and how purpose really is felt at all levels in our world. And what he's then chosen to do, and I'm just such a big fan of this, and I think there really is a proof in this conversation that businesses of all sizes, but particularly small and entrepreneurial ones really have got the greatest opportunity to make an impact and have a difference in this world. And that really is the crux of the conversation. His business model, in effect, uh, in, in an industry which doesn't seem particularly sort of exciting or radical or, or, or likely to make a change, but one that absolutely is, especially under the steerage of someone like Kevin. So this is the conversation, the last conversation uh, for this season with Kevin Tan. So Kevin, welcome to Better World Leaders, and I really appreciate you making some time for us today. Thank you, Tim. Uh, yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. So first of all, I mean, I, I know what where you are and, and what you've been going through, but just to set a little bit of the context for your experience right now, could you just share essentially where you're sitting and what's been going on for you these past few months? Well, um, uh, if you don't know, I live in Victoria, Melbourne uh, in Australia, and we are in lockdown, stage four lockdown. Um, some would call our leader Dictator Dan. Uh, for keeping us in this situation. Uh, the headlines are uh, that way inclined. But, um, yeah, so we're in lockdown at the moment and have been for quite a few weeks now, um, coming up to eight weeks, I think, and going to continue on until end of October. So it seems. Um, so, yeah, it's been a long time. Yeah. Mm. I mean, j just for the audience, because we, we, we do have listeners from all over the world, Australia's had this quite sort of polemic experience with COVID. Uh, we have a federal state system similar to America and certain states have managed the, the whole process around COVID quite differently. And unfortunately, Melbourne have experienced a, a, a much more extreme version of of the sort of protocols to to try and reduce the caseload and yes yeah yes. you guys have copped it really hard essentially that's that's the, yeah i mean we had a case explosion around july i think and that kind of prompted yeah. Yeah. Um, a stage four kind of lockdown which i think most um victorians were okay with at the start and said okay let's just handle it um i think as it wraps up now i think our numbers are looking around I haven't checked today, but um, below 50 on average. Um, yeah. So this calls to kind of open it up, especially because the, the state has been locked down for most of the year. A lot of businesses are affected um, and it's 
the, the restrictions are probably um, too restrictive for businesses to operate and get the economy going again. So there's big calls to kind of change that. Yeah, yeah, mm. absolutely. Mm. So let's let's just explore uh, sort of beyond the immediate, uh, you know, sort of your context, your experience, your background. So, I mean, the question that I like to ask at this stage is just simply where have you come from to, you know, sort of come to us today? And, and you can kind of start as, as, as far back as you feel is appropriate in response to that question. Yeah, sure. Well, I think we were introduced by a common friend um, that you have, Sue, Sue Glendening, who I... Um, have the great pleasure of knowing through BNI, which is a business network international chapter um, that I'm currently the president for. Um, and, you know, she's been a great uh, contact and, you know, business leader to kind of dialogue with. And so she introduced us. Um, in terms of, you know, how far I go back, well, I was born in Malaysia, uh, spent some time in America while my dad was doing his MBA. Uh, this was when I was about three years old, five years old. Um, and then we moved back to Malaysia after after that time uh, and then migrated to Australia in 1990 uh, when I was about 11. Yep. And then spent the rest of my life residing in Melbourne and loving it. I love Melbourne. Um, yeah, and then throughout that time, uh, yeah, just, I don't know, assimilated into Australian life and, um, you know, kind of grew up here enjoying all of Australia, uh, got educated in university through a marketing degree. Um, and then through that, which was one of the best experiences actually I had, um, which was my third year experience of university. And it just so happened to be an out of campus experience because I had to go work, uh, and actually do work uh, as a marketing <laughs> student. And I learned so much more in that time than I ever did in, uh, you know, sitting down to lectures. And I worked for Yarra Valley Water, which I still think was one of the best experiences for me and um, came out of that with so much more experience than I thought I would have. And one of the managers encouraged me to go into management consulting, which I then applied for, got into Accenture um, early 2000s, graduated 2000s, um, came out, joined them, great experience, uh, great training, and then 9-11 happened. And then when yeah, 9 right. yeah, and that was a big wow moment. Um, and that's when I switched careers as well. And there's a whole lot of information between those times uh, and experiences in that time. But um, I switched careers and went into development and aid uh, and spent – a lot of years in development and aid over 10 years in on the field. Oh, well, about eight years on the field and then off the field doing uh, fundraising. Um, and have recently left that, uh, started a business called Clean As You Go, as you see in my um, background there. And, yeah, that's what I'm doing now, operating a business. And I call it a for-purpose business. And I steal this term from Tim Costello, uh, the former yep. CEO. Um, he... He had a he had a dislike for the term not for profit because we don't define ourselves by what we're not. <laughs> we define ourselves by what we are and what we are is for purpose. And I love that. I love that. I love that term. And so yeah, we're a for purpose business, um, existing for the purpose, you know, good purposes. And so I call it for you know a purposeful profit. Purposeful yeah, profit. So yeah, and that's yeah. what I'm doing now. Mate, that's a that's a fantastic synopsis, and uh, yeah, there, there's there's probably three distinct areas that I'd like to spend some time talking about. Uh, the one is the profit for purpose piece, um, and we had we had another conversation here uh, with a guy called Harvey Penny, whose catchphrase is essentially "purpose powers profit." Yep, um, and uh, and yes, yeah, so it's, it's an emerging theme here, and yeah, the business that I run very, very you know, sort of similar intention and impact um, model. So we can definitely spend some time talking about why we believe business should and can operate that th this way. Um, I'd also really like to spend some time talking about your you know, sort of insights and the knowledge and uh, that, that you gained and the perspective that you grew you know, in this sort of I suppose like middle era, we could we could sort of say like your your time on the field and then in fundraising, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, to to sort of use your terms. But 
I'd actually like to sort of just sort of shift back to, sure. to sort of what I'll describe as a third domain, first of all, this original sort of shift. And, and, and you know, this term that I like to, to refer to as a moment of calling. I mean, was there a specific instance or a conversation or, you know, sort of a more gradual but still sort of identifiable realisation that actually there's something else I should be doing rather than continuing a successful career with a global management consulting firm like Accenture? Yeah, sure. Look, um, the dream was Accenture, you know, to kind of go up through that rank and, you know, gain partners. Uh, that was my, my dad's my dad's future for me. Um, in fact, I remember him sitting down and saying, Kevin, now that you've got in, just stay in there, you know, um, and work yourself up to partner. That was his plan for my life. Um, and it did not work out that way, as as we can see. But um, in terms of your your question, what was their turning point? Um, I probably have to go a bit further back because um, then the actual turning point itself. So I, I grew up in a in a household that was semi religious in terms of my mum was a Christian and my dad was not. Okay, uh, my dad was university educated MBA hard sciences, all that kind of stuff. My mum, much simpler than that, you know, not a university-educated person, but a religious person, Christian upbringing. And so I had that dual perspectives on life, uh, my whole life. And um, I remember one day my dad said, you know, some, you know, you, I think I was 12 or something, and he said, you got to decide what you, you believe in. And I remembered I was not able to decide at the age of <laughs> you know it's just too confusing too much information you know to try to decipher so but one experience i had was when i finished year 12 and when i finished year 12 you know like in a year 12 a person uh, was excited about the possibilities and one of my teachers at school who was a believer a christian uh, invited me to go to a, a camp and it was essentially a you know um to, to go help out in in um, certain towns and just run a, what we call a coffee shop, and the coffee shop was just a place, a safe place for the youth to come and hang out, um, and 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 not go and get drunk, basically. And so it was just a safe place. And so I ended up going. I had no idea why I was there really, um, and it was training on how to handle situations and all that kind of stuff, but when I went to this camp it was just, I think one of the biggest turning points in my life, because one, it showed me the impact of when you do go out there and you, you, you want to do help people and the impact of helping people. And we got, you know, grassroots level helping, you know, being with the local youth and with their struggles and their families and all the struggles with their families. And you get to know, and I was young, I was only 18. And um, that was a real, change for me um and i i was i guess brought into a christian experience um a real conversion experience if you if you like and kind of opened my eyes to the possibility of um who god was in my life and what that meant for myself uh, and mm. a real identification of hey i'm i'm there there is more you know out there and so that experience kind of, kind of carried me into university experience um and in university, I also went overseas and started doing um, trips overseas to places like Myanmar, uh, Burma, um, yeah. and Cambodia. And because I had that background coming from a migrant background from Malaysia, I guess um, it was it was kind of coming back to Asia experience, um, but not the Asia that I necessarily knew, which was middle class Asia. Uh, it was you know more in the poverty area, and that kind of showed me a whole nother side of life as well. And so those were kind of inputs into how I started to think um, in terms of, you know, what I wanted to do with my life. And so um, it was a parallel experience because I had that experience and then I had the career building experience, you know, of going through university and getting a good job and, you know, that's a good thing to do. Um, and I remember sitting in the office you know, when I was working in Accenture um, and all these kind of gathered experience I've had throughout university and through my Christian experience, uh, this was after 9-11. I was sitting there in the office, and um, we're kind of working away there in a strange environment because after 9-11, a lot of things changed, um, especially in consulting as well. Um, 
consulting industry used to be, you know, this place where you go and there's money throwing around everywhere. You get to fly everywhere and all this high corporate stuff. And there was a distinct change around 2000 after 9-11 and um, the industry changed a lot and the money was not quite there anymore. And um, I remember sitting down there and going, well, is this what I'm going to do for the rest of my life? You know, sitting in front of a computer, it was late at night and we we're coding away for some client. And, um, and I had this distinct experience and I said, you know, if there's more, let, show me, you know, show me. And that's all, that's all I, uh, I kind of um, put out there. And within two weeks, uh, the whole department, I think, we lost about 50% because there was a big cut throughout the yeah, whole right. department. Um, I was in communication high tech and all the budget left that uh, industry. There was only two real big groups at that time, Telstra um, and Optus, and they cut budgets. And so, you know, our whole department got let off. And then I remember walking the streets in Melbourne uh, with all my Accenture friends going, what are we going to do? Um, you know, we've just been fired from our dream jobs. Uh, a lot of people started applying for the next consulting job. Um, but I remember sitting there in Burke Street and saying to myself, I was reminded of the of the prayer I made and said, "Is there more?" And um, and that that question lingered in my brain, and I thought maybe I'll just hold out, you know, instead of just going down this path um, and being fearful about you know the next job I would get, I would just wait out. And I waited for about eight months, and I did a lot of reading in that eight months, and just contemplating about what next. And um, at the end of that eight months is where I ended up in a. In a I guess whether you call it a job uh, or position within a, a, an organization called Partners International, it's actually an American organization. Um, and yeah, I, I found this position and it was quite through luck because someone in my church just started one of the teams uh, for this American firm. And he was a doctor, a uh, very prominent doctor. He was a cardiologist uh, who gave up his practice kind of in the height of it. Uh, to to go into development and aid work and Christian development and aid work. And so he invited me because I was kind of in the same position about 20 years younger um, mm. to be part of that. And so I said, yep, um, it's kind of the position I've been looking for. And so it was happen chance, coincidence, a divine intervention, what you call, uh, and that kind of kicked it off. And so in 2001, 2002, I started uh, traveling into China um, and that kind of kicked off that whole part of my life. So I don't want to go too much further because the original question was what can be a turning point in my life, and that that was kind of the turning point. Um, yeah, uh, out of tragedy, kind of this whole opportunity came. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I get it. I mean, it, 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 it's a detailed exploration, but I understand that decisions are rarely made in the moment, right? Like no. there's always the, yeah. the context forming. I mean, yeah. I will not go into the, the same amount of detail because I want to get to that second domain of the experience, the lived experience, and what that's now informed you as to your leadership. But I have these three particular references going back to when I was probably 17 at high school, campaigning to raise awareness and build a petition to cancel third world debt. So that would have, that was in, I think, 1997. And that was my first sort of yep. like semi-activist, you know, sort of like, even at that young age, leaning into what I would say are now pronounced strengths of communication and connection and engagement with people around purpose and a contribution that they can make even at a very, very grassroots level. Um, but that didn't ultimately get me or the cause very far because mm. it's just names on a piece of paper. And mm. then I had this other one where I was traveling in North Africa and witnessed a traumatic event witnessed uh basically a small town get washed away in a flash flood no oh, well wow. uh which was a you know which was a climate impact event um and you know had this very direct first line experience with the kind of stuff that you normally see on the evening news mm. right like here's this awful stuff and here's this flood in bangladesh or here's this fire in wherever you know i was sitting on the bonnet of a land rover watching this unfold in front of me mm. um and i did what little i could in the moment you know handing over some cash and you know trying to get you know kind of 
literally arms into this stuff and, and try and help, but ultimately didn't lead to any significant change in me. You know, mm. I went back to my normal world, went back to my normal life, kind of filed this one away and didn't do anything. Um, you know, I started donating to UNHCR and others, but I didn't do anything. Mm. My actions, my behaviors did not change. And then the most recent one, you know, so with this bushfire bearing down on us, had this, I'm not religious, but I think it's the kind of experience that could potentially be referred to as an intervention. Because what I received was literally this vision, right? That I, w I was on the roof of, of my house with this very sort of ineffective, puny uh, little sort of filtration system trying to rig up something to, to try and dampen the house down if the, if the fire front did come through. And I, uh, I received this vision of basically everything going quiet, turning full 240 degrees and just seeing everything on fire. But in the kind of like the movie sort of way, <laughs> not deafening, you know, sort of raw and total blackness and inability to breathe because of the smoke, which a bush fire is actually like. Mm. This was just like walls of orange fire. But it was calm, like the emotion was calm, but also very clarifying and the message that I didn't hear but I received very clearly in my brain was there's nowhere to hide and that to me as I kind of like over the you know hours and days that followed this sort of unraveled the meaning of this was essentially there are challenges that face all of us essentially regardless of status position age access to capital, you know, there's stuff going on in the world right now, whether you want to look at social justice or you want to look at poverty or you want to look at, you know, provision and access to sanitation or you want to look at climate change or breakdown in food systems. <laughs> mm. <laughs> there's a list. Like, these things affect everybody. There's nowhere that anyone can hide from these things. And the only thing you can do is everything you can do mm. uh, by making a change and using the things that you do have for you and I, we have businesses that we run, we can use those for purpose. Yeah, so that was, that was the moment. But there were several moments before that yeah. sort of took me took me to that point and that moment of journey. Mm. So thank you for, for sharing yours. And, and I appreciate you bearing with me through mine. No. Um, so let's focus in a little bit more directly now on, on this period of time. So you, you're working for this, this, this you know, sort of American outfit, and then you, you transitioned into World Vision mm -hmm. and, and, and spent some time there. Uh, so maybe if I could just ask you to sort of collectively, you know, sort of pick on some of the key learning experiences that, that you sort of went through, you know, around how do these organizations make an impact? How does leadership steer the impact that they make? And, and, and maybe what were the sort of sculpting moments of, of your own sort of outlook on leadership and, and, and the, the role of organizations like this in business? Yeah, Sorry, sure. That's question. <laughs> I'll try to remember them. Um, it's, you know, a fascinating question, you know, the role of leadership. I think leadership plays, uh, I don't think anyone would disagree with this, um, such a key part in any society that we that we live in and i guess, I guess when I, I i traveled around the world and I traveled extensively through the first part uh, with partners international you know i started off in china and that was when the you know the iron curtains just fell down in 2000s and you know the concrete was going up everywhere it was still soft you know and they were starting to build and it was just that rush of building and commerce um and understanding of freedoms and all, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, that was a big transition of leadership over there. Um, and you see people rise up in the local communities in leadership that they've never had before to transform the communities, you know, and people, you know, um, and especially the Chinese are very business orientated, take that leadership and, and make what they will of it. Um, and then I traveled to Central Asia, which is, uh, I spent about five years there, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, and you see a different form of leadership. You see a post-Russian, you know, leadership over there and the effects of what that was. Um, and then I tra traveled to Africa and extensively throughout Africa as well, um, you know, to deepest, darkest Congo. And then you see the effects of poor leadership in certain areas, you know, um, and what can happen there. But then you see pockets of inspiring leadership where people would sack, you know, I think an aspect of great leadership is the ability for them to sacrifice their own wants and needs for the greater good. Yeah. And so you see people 
doctors who have given up professions in, you know, they could have had in Europe to set up hospitals in the middle of nowhere to help people. I mean, to me, that is leadership, you know, and you see those pockets rise up everywhere to kind of give hope and light to people. Um, so, yeah, like that, that kind of experience shaped a lot of what I, I think can happen in leadership. And part of what I do now is because of, of that and what I see is possible. Um, I mean, I, we were having a conversation before, Tim, and, you know, uh, often we think it's it's leaderships of, you know, those in higher positions and in influential positions that matter. And, of course, they do matter. Um, but everyone is in leadership in some form, you know, self-leadership or in leadership of organisations or managerial positions. And I think it all matters because the culture of what you set as a leader, whether you're leading from the bottom or leading from the top, will will affect culture. And I think culture then affects everything else. Yeah, so, um, so that was from the field how I experienced um, how leadership can change things. And then when I came off the field, um, when I say off the field, you know, it was kind of intensive programming that I did on the field. And then when I came off the field, it was more about fundraising. Yeah. So, yeah. and then that was, you know, bigger, bigger kind of macro, macro things that I would come into, especially with World Vision. World Vision is one of the largest NGOs in the world. Um, and so seeing it from a very macro perspective and how they implement certain things and working with governments um, to, to make sure that happens and leadership in that context uh, was very different again, but still same, you know, it was so much about culture changing. And, um, you know, when we talk about, um, you know, the safety of, of, of children um, in these places, it's often education. It's not, it's not creating programs that, um, you know, putting, putting, um, you know, physical barriers now, for safety it was more educating the general population on the value of children, you know, and the value of women and little girls. Uh, and so it was a mindset change more than anything else. So, yeah, uh, I think um, that that's kind of my experience of what leadership does in a community. So... I'm not sure whether I'm, I'm still staying on. No, that, yeah. no, 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 no. Keep going. I mean, it's perfect. I'm going to ask a specific question, but before I do, I think, you know, that's an invaluable perspective. I mean, I, and one which I absolutely share uh, and, and very much sits in the purpose of this podcast and the organization I lead and, and you know, sort of the overall, I think, sort of, you know, leadership ethos, uh, you know, of the network that we're engaging with, that it's not up to a uh, person you know a, a level of anything government organization whatever like the, there is a there is an absolute demand for grassroots level bottom up change mm. um you know to to tackle these big challenges mm. um and i think a lot of the time the more attention you spend looking at leaders at the top of anything uh the more you realize that the majority of them are followers mm as much as they are leaders, mm. you know, and I think politicians in particular, right? Like they will follow the demand side trend of their electorate or whatever the pollsters tell them their electorate are telling them to do, right? I think there are few, not enough, you know, sort of bold politicians who will essentially stand up and say, this is what we're going to do because of this. Believe me, here we go. You'll see the outcome down the line. Mm. Um, a lot of the time it's responsivity. It's policy based on you know, anger yeah. or pacification or whatever. I think more so I see sort of mid-level or, or, or sort of grassroots level uh, leadership is actually what drives change and activates um, yeah. you know, I, sort of a positive I, response. Yeah, I mean, I totally, uh, I totally agree with you on that. You know, um, I, I think at a fundamental level I agree that personal responsibility is – is vital, yeah, um, and, and key to change. And everyone can take personal responsibility. It's not something yeah. that, you know, someone up the top needs to take more than you do because as it rolls out and you take personal responsibility, and then this is the thing, um, I think what's lacking a lot in our conversation around leadership these days is uh, a moral compass, yeah. Uh, to, to be able to be a leader, and we touched on that before, is to really be able to sacrifice your own self for the for for something that is of truth and and good for the greater people. But how often will you sacrifice yourself to do that? 
you know, and the examples of leadership that I showed you on the ground, on the field, where people have taken that stand. They could have had a better life if they stayed in whatever country they did, but they decided to go to a place of need and, you know, use their skills for that. It took personal sacrifice for that to happen. And, you know, unless you had a moral compass to be able to do that, then it's mm. it's hard. And so I think I think so much of our leadership today, we focus on the hard, you know, the leadership must you know, do this and be a certain type of personality or certain, you know, but really we, we, we forget about the, 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 the fundamental truths about how, where that comes from. And I think um, a moral compass really is important in that, that sense. Mm. And everyone, and everyone can have that. And everyone can, can choose to take that position Mm. or, you know, they can, they can, you know, sort of not know any different because it's been imbued in them from, you know, birth mm. or it's, you know, sort of it's significant within, yeah. within their, 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 their tribe or their family or their faith. Yeah. Um, but I think the other thing is that, you know, what, what you've experienced uh, and I've had you know, a very small amount of com- com- uh, comparable experience sort of on the ground in, 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 in um, Asia and Southeast um, Asia and, and Central South America. But I think the other thing is that, but these are extreme examples of people essentially sort of abandoning a way of life to go into one of service, right? And and, and these are absolutely vital and deserve celebration. But in order to do good and follow purpose and do more, you don't have to pack up the practice and get on the boat. (laughs) I know where you're going with this, yes, yeah. And I think particularly at the moment, but but to your, your common theme of it's leadership in service of the greater good, which is in sacrifice of something, like we spend a lot of time looking at future of work, future of leadership, and the future is is like an hour from now and everything moment from here. Mm. And a lot of the the leadership approaches, as we prefer to um, use that term over styles, because approach is 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 sort of deliberate and intentional, and you know, is is a way of making progress towards something, right? And and allows you to vary it, because with the world that we're living in and what lies ahead of us, you know, there's, there's all of the leadership approaches that are being described empirically and lived by the people, I would say, the best performing leaders right now, they're all in a way devotional, mm. right? Whether it's participative leadership, where it's all about bringing everybody together and looking to bring these collective intelligences and collective sources of wisdom rather than the leader is the one source of truth, mm-hmm. right? Or it's, you know, a sharing of power and it's delegatory leadership, right? Or it's a taking a coaching approach to leadership rather than a mentoring one. You know, I'm going to ask questions to activate your potential rather than tell you what to do based on my lived experience. You know, these are all about sacrificing something, right? So it's sacrificing status as the leader who knows everything, right? Well, I don't know everything. You're the team. We've got collective yeah. wisdom here. What, what are we going to do? Yeah. Or sacrificing power. Yep. I delegate my authority to you because now you're in a better position to do what you know needs to be done and you don't have to keep coming to me. Right? Like These are all sacrifices that for some are innate and it's just the way that they do. But for a lot, it's not the way that they have seen leaders operate. Mm. It's not the way that they've been taught to lead. Um and a lot of the time, it, it's it's not the way that they're sort of sure they should lead. Uh, and there's a lot of fear of failure that then comes out of that, right? So I think that there is this sort of push and pull effect. I think we're being pulled to operate and lead in very different ways because of the challenges we face and the complexity of our world. But we're also, uh, you know, sort of being pushed by these examples of, of, of people like yourself who are saying, come on, guys, you know what? Actually, I've seen this. There's a better way of doing things and we can apply it to our regular lives and we're going to get a better outcome and this is why yeah sure yeah sure you know and and uh, i think that's a that's a great point like not uh, uh, everyone can tap into that power yeah it takes a certain amount of courage to be able to stand up for you know when, when i say moral compass um or personal responsibility everyone knows that little bit of thing that you're not quite doing right yeah somehow maybe we're taking advantage like for example in my industry the cleaning industry it's yeah, rampant, sure. ramp, rampant. Now, let's, let's go down to you know the, the nitty-gritty of you know um of 
of applying what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, it's, let's bring it home. It's not, Absolutely. It's not easy. It, it's, it, has, it takes a certain one sacrifice, but courage to make that sacrifice happen, right? So we're, we're new into this industry. We bought over an uh, existing company. Um, we're now two years and a bit in into operating this company. And we've kind of, you know, we've, we've made it more than it was before, uh, made it a lot more relational with clients and with our staff, um, which is great. But one of the things that came to light with my business partner and I was when we started looking at the numbers, um, we know that rampant um, underpaying of people is a big problem in our industry. And our business model is one where we don't have many staff. We have a lot more subcontractor. Yeah. So, and subcontractors predominantly are people from overseas who cannot speak English as well as we would, who don't understand certain um, legalities of things. And so they get taken advantage of. They don't have a voice. Uh, and so they get underpaid. Yeah. So we know this is a thing in the industry. And when we looked at our numbers, we thought, how in the world are they performing that job with that amount of money? Yeah, so it was this question that was going through our mind. Now, my business partner and I could have easily gone, well, you know, let's forget that because we can pocket all that. <laughs> let's not talk about the gross margins because, um, you know, it's, it's good profit for us. But we started to have to ask those questions because um, our conscience wouldn't allow us to continue to operate this. Now, am I some leader of spotless uh, and a large, you know, commercial cleaning no, uh, I'm just a small business. But to that point, everyone can take leadership in this. And if everyone took leadership in it, then we wouldn't underpay people. Uh, and that's what we decided to do. You know, we started looking at our numbers and trying to up the pay where it needed to be upped so that they could, you know, um, be rewarded for the work that they do. And they do great jobs. Um, and I think since that point, there was a culture shift in our organization as well um, and in our business and the workers there, they felt a bit more appreciative. We definitely built a better relationship with these guys. So there was a net effect that, that happened. Um, although, you know, in terms of pure numbers, it did not look good. We actually grew out of that experience. Yeah. Yeah. So even though we give a bit away, we actually gained a lot more. Now that wasn't the purpose of it. The purpose of it was because we felt obligated and morally you know, something was not quite right. So, and we're not saying that we got everything right as well, because there's still a lot of things to be fixed within the whole industry in general. And so we're on a, you know, a journey to be able to be part of that voice. Um, but to your point, I think everyone can do that. Yeah. Uh, you don't need to be a, a CEO to be able to make those kind of calls. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's no, it's hmm. fascinating. And I think, so the, 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 the thing that I'm going to, I'm going to speak to in that, and it's a great point and, and, and thank you for the very, I think appropriate, let's get kind of granular with this, right. And let's take it into a real world example of your business. But I think the key thing that I'm, I've received from that and that I'm going to focus on is I think there's this disparity of perspective in terms of, well, I'm going to wait until I've got enough and then I'm going to do the right thing. Mm. But I've kind of, I've got to get there before I can. Or it's, I'm going to do the right thing because it's the right thing. And in doing so, I anticipate that we'll, we'll, we'll perform in the right way and that we'll grow over time. And I think for a lot of people, that, that second perspective is one that they really want to take and they do take, but it's one of hope and it's hope that doesn't actually have the data to inform that it's the right decision commercially. And it's, it's a right decision, which is it going to actually come to growth mm -hmm. because you're doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. And what I'm absolutely a believer in because I do the research um, and, I, and I, I read sources from BCG and McKinsey, you know, all the way through to, you know, like look at the, look at the performance on the NASDAQ of organizations that are performance led versus purpose-driven. Mm -hmm. And over time, and I've, I've got a friend who's given me like his investor relations pack that, that he took it into a business case with a big global business to basically say this is, and he's an accountant, like, this is the financial business case for being purpose-led. They outperform over time by a significant ratio mm -hmm. in return on capital employed, on return on investment, in dividends paid, like all of these reasons why you see big companies like Unilever and many, many others going, hey, you know what? Enough. 
we are a purpose-driven business. This is how we make decisions mm. and so on and so on. Mm. But I actually think you and I are at an advantage because, you know, the old analogy of, you know, the you know, turn the little catamaran versus the oil tanker, right? <laughs> like yeah. we're running small businesses. We're nimble. We're agile. You know, we can make a decision like that um, and it's our call. So I think that absolutely allows us to just do the right thing and keep doing the right thing. But what I'm also very much sensing, and I think the data is is building, it's not quite there as a set yet, but that there is a lot of not just interest, but demand building you know, from big customers to say, well, we need suppliers that are all about this mm. right stuff, mm. right? Like, yeah, proper governance, correct practices, you know, do no harm, don't just do no harm, do good. Um, and then they want to look at your diversity index and they want to look at your climate impact scores and all of that kind of stuff. Like I actually really think that that is coming and I hope that it's not being done just for good PR. I, mean, I actually <laughs> don't think it is. Because um, certainly I'm aware of some statistics that, you know, from a product perspective, you know, consumers will pay a lot more and will sort of seed knowingly a lot more margin to a product that is doing no harm and mm-hmm. you know having a positive mm-hmm. climate impact mm-hmm. and, and, and and is you know made with natural products like that. That is there. You can see that in the retail consumption data. Mm-hmm. So I think we can apply the same logic to a services business like yours and mine. Um, and, and anticipate that there's there's going to be a similar demand curve. Yeah, that's at least that's my prediction. Yeah, what do you think? Well, I think the collective consciousness of of this is increasing, isn't it? Um, I, I heard a, a business leader, uh, his name's Dave Hodgson. He owns a, a capital investment fund, and he said that you know he's very much in in line with what we're talking about in terms of culture changing. And um, he said if we get six percent of businesses, and I don't know how accurate it is, but this is what he says. He's quoting this. Um, if we get 6% of small, medium-sized SMEs uh, on board, it will it will be the tipping point for cultural change. And the reason is because small businesses and medium-sized businesses play such a big part. I think there's 600,000 small businesses in, a, in, in Victoria alone. Um, I, don't, I don't know how many will be left after this lockdown. But, um, you know, if we can get 6% of them operating in this way, um, then... It, it will be the tipping point for everyone to act in this way as well, because every supplier, will, everyone wanting suppliers, will want suppliers who are like this as well, and so it will be, you know, um, the the push towards all that. So, hundred yeah, percent aggregator effect is the key. Hundred um, percent. Yeah, because do we, yeah do we look to the you know the the top five biggest businesses or the five hundred thousand smallest businesses, mm. right? Like and. These guys are going to move faster. Um, you know that that net contribution is probably mm-hmm. going to outpace each other quite quickly. Yeah. Uh, and if these guys move first, the counterweight will probably pull the others along as well. Yeah. It, it, so let me it, just ask you. As, yeah. Sorry. Go. Go ahead. No, it's an interesting thing as well. You know, you, you cite some some research around um, you know doing good in a business and how that or for purpose a purposeful business is in long term more profitable. Um, and I liken it, you know, if you if you take the concept because sometimes it's so big that idea is such a big idea. But if you take it to a an individual level and people you like to hang out with, and an individual level you like to hang out with certain types of people, yeah, indeed, right. And all we're saying is that you be that person in your business, yeah. You be generous and you be faithful. You you say what you do what you say. All these very general things that we will apply to any friendship you know, or any partnership that we would have, then just live that out. You know, put policies in place to make sure that your business runs that way, and it will attract good business, yeah, good contracts, you know, good staff, and that's that's the outcome I think that will happen. And mm-hmm. so, you know, at a granular level, um, we kind of understand it from a relationship. We just apply, 
and organizations kind of grow that way. So, I mean, I'm going to ask you what may be a, a, a tricky question and obviously I'm not asking you to disclose anything, but do you see the proof of this in the interactions you're having with customers as, you know, you've obviously bought and rebranded a business, you're going into a competitive market, which is definitely price sensitive. It's viewed as a commodity service. Are you seeing customers essentially buying into this message and, and to well, what you're offering? Yeah, okay. So um, to, to that point, I guess in, in our world where we look at contract cleaning, yeah, because we, we, we win contracts and we perform that contract, um, we can look at that contract as just a customer, someone paying bills and we get – you know, our staff there, they clean, we get invoicing, and they are just a customer. And I think in a lot of ways, that's how it was operating. You know, they were just kind of customers. Um, when my business partner and I came in, and we're, we're kind of, in our personalities, very relational, we brought that aboard and we said, no, they're not just customers. They're the people that work and live there. They, they want a great environment. Um, every time they come into the door, they want a great environment. And we, we clean a lot of common area for apartments as well. It's where they live. And, you know, so uh, I think that 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 way of being uh, translated into how we interact with our partners and you know, our clients. So we say we even call them partners. Um, and we said, no, look, we, we want to do this job not because we're paid to do this job well, but because we really care about, you know, these spaces. And there was a huge turnaround. And, and so I think the retention rate for our business be before we were on board was quite low. Um, and now, you know, we're sitting on, you know, close to 98% retention rates, um, which is Massive. which is huge in the cleaning industry. Yeah. You know, it's, it's cleaning. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we won't go into the stats of it, but I, I've done some work with cleaning companies and I absolutely know that that's enormous. Yeah, right. You know, and, yeah. Um, and often the case that we would become their trusted partners now. So it wouldn't only just be cleaning. So we kind of expanded our services to go into handyman services electrical yeah. services, you know, facility maintenance for services and plumbing and all the different things. Why? Because our customers uh, wanted to pick up the phone and say, hey, can you fix this for us? Because you, you do that aspect of your job so well already. Now, was that us being smart businessmen going, hey, if we do this well, we're going to get, you know, opportunities this way? Maybe, but really it was because we just wanted to a great job by them, you know, and um, lead in that way and, and not be, uh, I guess, um, just doing business for the sake of making profit. It was a purpose yeah. behind it. And one of the things that we've, we, we say as well, like every clean matters uh, because part of our profits go towards, you know, different social projects. Um, every clean matters. It matters to the client and it also matters to the beneficiaries that we donate to. So um, that kind of philosophy then translates to everything we do and it, it has improved that business in fact we've almost almost doubled the business since we took it over so um, i think that's so i'm going to say that's a yes <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there is the proof right there so mm. we've got a 98 percent retention rate in an industry standard which is significantly lower than that and we've got a doubling of growth in and you're saying two years right yeah. like you've had yeah. this business for two years so that i think is going to be celebrated as yes this is the proof that this can work but and, and also yeah yeah you've got the you know you've got the yeah the growth of the of the mixed service offer um opportunities to to do more um but that's an interesting one and as you say you know, are, we, are we doing this almost sorry i'm projecting myself into, right. into you and your business partners heads now are we doing this because we're smart are we doing it yeah, because we've got a strategic plan here that's, you know, we've done our market research and we know that this is the way to go and we've spotted a niche or whatever, or are we doing it intuitively because it sits within our faith and it sits within our value system and we know it's the right thing to do. So it's intuitive. The outcome's the same. doesn't matter. Mm. Um, but that last bit there, I think that to an extent, you know, maybe especially in any marketplace where the comparability of service offering is somewhat limited right like the variability of how you go about cleaning a space okay you can mechanize some elements you can use some software algorithms to chart the efficiency of the cleaning routes and you can vary the dilution of your chemicals right like but outside of that uh, uh, yeah. um you know but but every clean matters you know and then the application as that you know sort of person is moving through that space again good on you because you go to the research 
And what that says is that by engaging an individual with every individual action contributes to the higher purpose and the meaning that comes from that, that is a massive productivity enabler Mm. because it gives a motivation to something which otherwise might seem arbitrary, you know, or even maybe, you know, sort of demeaning Mm. in some way. Mm. You know, I mean, and, and it's something again you know, a shared, a shared, um, you know, sort of path between us. You know, every time we do something, we create a giving impact in the world, right? And it's, you know, we, we just sort of formalised that. You know, sort of launching in October this year to, okay, we're going to put a specific number around this. Like every time we make anything happen, we give or we create a giving of a thousand impacts in health, education, food, or environment. And then we top it up with something else, depending on the service line, you know, and, and, and there's a margin equation there. But we don't just do this and then put it in our board report. No. Right? Like we do it. We ask you as the customer, which of those four areas would you like your thousand impacts to go towards? And then which of these 17 global SDGs matters the most to you? And that's where the additional donation will go. And then the team member who delivers the service, they get to choose where an allocation goes to them based on that same index, right? So that's attaching specific meaning and contribution of a higher purpose to a leadership coaching session or facilitating a workshop or doing a cleaning job. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know about you, man, but that gives me a reason to get out of bed every day. Yeah, great. No, good. Good on you. You know, um, I think what you're doing is fantastic. And it's, it's again, leading from your position um, and ability to do that. Uh, well, one of the struggles that we had... Um, I wouldn't say struggle, but one of the jobs that I had in, in World Vision was um, as head of corporate partnerships. So we were trying to win the favour of people like the Unilever and um, uh, and we were working with large corporates. And one of the things was so interesting to see when, um, you, know, we, we, you know, you ask the question, is it a PR exercise? Yeah, oftentimes when we do these things, this is just another marketing gimmick that we go, okay, we're doing some good with what we do. But it's so evident when the companies that do do it do it well. Um, like for example, we work with Jetstar, and Jetstar on their when you book um, an airline ticket, and which is you know very hard to do nowadays. Um, there was an ability for you to donate part of that to you know uh, to a cause. Now you would think that okay, that's a great gesture. What's the impact of that? Well, it was enormous. You know, for Jetstar, it was a great narrative that they could tell. Every time they were flying to a certain country, they said, hey, you know, we actually have a project on the ground which is helping this country that we're flying to. Do you want to know more about it? You know, um, the staff were so much more engaged. They could say, you know, instead of talking about the airline experience, they could talk about a purpose experience, you know, and some of the staff would have actually visited some of these villages and so they could see the impact of what they were doing as staff members. It was just beyond producing a great service. Producing a great service was part of, hey, let's get this um, experience great for our clients so that we can actually impact these kind of communities even more. So, you know, I think think the ability to implement it um, and have the net effect of that, the net benefit of that, happen across so many different levels from client to customer, uh, sorry, client to, to staff member to, you know, to the whole operation is, is ginormous if, if you can implement it well. So good on you for encouraging others to do the same. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and then look, you know, it's, it's not, you know, I would like to do a lot more and, and, and so on and so on, but I think that's the, okay. You know, we all yeah, do our bit. <laughs> And it's the small steps towards the overall outcome, right? And it's being part of, you know, the mass rather than waiting for the one to move. That's right. right. That's right. um, So, but I I also, it's also given me a real level of comfort with profit, right? Because there's a part of me which is, I think, kind of innately altruistic. Um, Hmm. You know, I'll, I'll do something to help someone and then I'll kind of figure out, how and whether I should charge them for it, right? And, uh, I have you know, endured some criticism for that from certain parties in the past. Disclaimer, my advisory board have given me some stern words about this. Um, but but I, I'm now much more comfortable with profit because I know that if I'm more profitable, I can be more impactful, mm. right? And I look at purpose-driven profit 
as a way to get to a position of having more profit by attracting the right customer, customer who wants to work with an outfit like us versus the hundreds of others that do a similar version of what we do. Um, and that when we get there, we can choose to do all this, all this mm, great work, mm. but we also know that we've made a contribution along the way. Yeah. And we don't have to wait to, oh, great, now we've got the million-dollar EBITDA, now we can donate $100,000. Mm, mm. right? Like it's not, it's well, I don't know if we'll ever get $100 million EBITDA, mm. but, you know, we've gotten this fantastic profit result and look at what we've achieved on the way. And now, how do we reinvest this profit mm. in such a way that it can activate mm. a whole new level of compounding growth and then look at the impact from that? Mm. So I'm going to ask you a, a, a question and invite you to give some advice, right? So if, if somebody's been listening to this and they're in any of these levels of leadership role that you described earlier, right, which is essentially to say anyone that's listening to this is in a, <laughs> is in a role of leadership, mm. are there some specific steps that you would suggest people take are there any questions that you might suggest that they consider or even just some resources that have helped you that you would orientate people towards um that's a good question i probably should have prepared a bit earlier um <laughs> I, I, if i if i was to think about it i think the first step is always to ask that hard question yeah if if and it's often times you don't have the time to ask these questions and to have the reflective time to actually ponder what is in my business or what is within my purview my my influence which if i search deep within i know something's not quite right yeah something i can fix it might be small it, you know it might be a system issue it might be a pay issue whatever it is and you start with that little voice yeah and I think that plays out because once you get used to that voice in your head and acting on that, on that conscience or whatever you want to call it, I think that plays itself out. And I think that's how it started for me. Um, and not that I'm a perfect person, but I, I'm, I'm conscious of that, you know, and like you say, you're altruistic because you're listening to a certain voice. And so I think it starts there. You ask that question and it was a hard question for my business partner and I to ask because it had real consequences of us, you know, giving away gross profit for no reason apart from we have to satisfy that voice that felt that something wasn't right. And so I think it starts there. Um, there are resources that I can um, lead you to. Some are probably a bit more Christian ways of thinking around these things. Um, I know someone set up a course that helps you walk through some of this and, you know, align your business to a greater purpose. Um so I can send you resources on that um, later yeah, on. Perfect. But, um, I'll get them in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and certainly talk to organisations like World Vision uh, who want to, you know, help your business align themselves to other purposes as well. If you're not sure how to how to do that, so there's certainly ways to do that. Um, and it's exciting, you know, to see the journey because I was part of that. You know, introducing businesses to this concept and for them to take that journey. Everyone was activated from the staff, like I was talking before, to the leader who is who is making it happen. Um, and it's exciting to see that transformation happen at an individual level as well as the corporate level. You know, so yes, yeah, certainly. Um, yeah, I'll send you some links. Mm. Perfect, perfect. So look, I think that's a good place to to leave it. Um, and thank you very much for everything that you've shared, you know, for your time and your, and your energy. Uh, and I, I will sort of say, you know, thank you for everything that you and your business partner are choosing to do with clean as you go. Um, but most especially just for sort of sharing your personal journey and, and, you know, that, that cascade to get you to that, that moment of commitment, um, and risk. And, and I'm very, very glad to hear how well it's all paying out well playing out and, 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 and you know, sort of rewarding you. So yeah, sure. Is there anything, you know, sort of as a sign off that you'd like to say any, any sort of rally cry that you may have, or, <laughs> or just simply, you know, sort of to, to, you know, share a sentiment with, with the audience that is here with us now? Uh, well, firstly, thank you, Tim, uh, for inviting me on this podcast. I didn't really know what I'd expect when I was first invited to be, you know, to pick my brain on this topic. You know, often you think, oh, what do I know about this? Um, so it's great to have a conversation with like-minded people uh, to promote uh, a purposeful profit for people. Um, there is no really cry, I guess, for me. It's more, you know, um, if you're listening to this, yeah, think about how you can align yourself to a purposeful profit. 
And if you don't know how to do that, reach out to myself or Tim and we'll, we'll lead you down that path. We'll certainly do what we can. Mm-hmm. Hundred percent. No, I'll I'll, uh, I'll I'll take the opportunity to sign off with my rally cry, which is "Better Leaders, Better World," and uh, we'll leave it there for today. So, thank you, Kevin, and good on you. Great, keep doing the great work. Great, thanks, Tim. Much appreciated. What a great guy Kevin is, right? And there's so many points to explore and delve down into which I hope you will. I hope you'll take some time with this and and, and really sort of explore in your own time all of those specific turning points, I suppose, is is, is the word I'm searching for, that Kevin reached and, you know, didn't make impulsive decisions. I think that was the thing that really stood out to me about Kevin's approach. He's not one of these people who just turns on a dime and goes, right, that's it. I know where I'm headed. You know, he took that time in that story early on in the dialogue there to really explain. It took him a while to figure out his next move after Accenture. It wasn't Monday, Accenture, Tuesday, World Vision. There was some exploration and some work that he needed to do there. And I think this is something which is is, is very much appropriate to be the main point that I'm just going to hold us here with. That, you know, in our... You know, Snapchat, instant gratification age, you know, this, this mention of purpose quite often invokes a, a, a sort of response of, great, give it to me now. And where do I go to get that in a day or half an hour? And it doesn't work. That's not how purpose works. And I mean, I've had my own experiences with leaning into or being led to purpose, which has taken at the shortest compression of time I could make it, it would be 10 years. But it may actually you know, be longer than that. Um, you know, For Kevin, it wasn't 10 years, but it was some months bordering on a year before he made that leap. And then even once he was into World Vision, you know, it then took him years to get to this point of now I can make a difference as an entrepreneur. And just isn't it that simple? Something like contract cleaning, one of the most commoditized services there is, but you can just do it better and you can make an impact, you know, through them, you know, make every clean mean um, and initiatives like that. And that, that, that is what's going to move the dial on this. I think, you know, governments and very, very large, you know, philanthropic and for-profit organizations, yes, they can impact tumultuous change very quickly but they need to be led to the point of doing so and in the meantime and certainly i've experienced this in one of the communities that i'm in the b1g1 community that there are a lot of people running their own businesses or working for very small even micro entities that are absolutely following up their inclination and their intention to have that right impact and I absolutely applaud Kevin for what he's doing and I I have absolute certainty he's going to go very well. So speaking of one of those initiatives, if I just let that one lie as my main point for Kevin or from Kevin uh, and, and pass on to you, allow purpose to gestate, give it time, uh, but do tune into it and pay attention to it and, and share it when you find it. But these initiatives, so I've talked about the... Um, hashtag thousand impacts initiative that four I are launching and that all guests uh basically get uh get to decide where their thousand impacts is going um so essentially for the time being and in this season this is a bit of a standby if you're curious come to foreyeleadership.com backslash impact and you can see where these impacts are landing and, and and the work that we are contributing to but i have an intention to have a number of things that you, the audience of this broadcast, can get involved with uh, and, and may wish to take this initiative on yourselves and you know, roll out, roll with in your own lives uh, and potentially in your own businesses as well. Uh, and I'm in discussion with Paul Dunn, the chairman of B1G, about exactly how we can go on and do that. So it's all about collaboration. It's all about amplification uh, and, and really shifting the change as positively as possible as quickly as possible uh, and, and taking the lead 
where others need to be led. So that is that for this episode. There is just a little bit more of this season still to come. So stand by and uh, I will see you very, very soon. As always, great thanks and appreciation to the team who contributed to bringing better world leaders to you. To Brendan Ward for production of all audio recordings and composition and performance of original music throughout each episode. To Cooper and the team at Radio Hub Studios for technical support and creative guidance during the episodes that are recorded face-to-face. To Knock Knock Studios for website design, hosting and advice. And to Sarasa Design for logo and site graphics. You'll find audio and video recordings of this episode, as well as links to any specific recommendations or related resources that were mentioned today in the podcast area of 4iLeadership.com backslash insights. This is the Better World Leaders podcast, brought to you by 4i Leadership. to world.